Hello, my friends, and welcome to this five-week salmon series. I am going to start this series by saying I am a terrible Idahoan. As someone who was born and raised here, I should have had a better pulse on what's going on with the salmon, but I didn't. I have an even worse confession to make. I've never actually seen an ocean-faring salmon in the wild before. The closest I've ever gotten to these incredible fish are their landlocked brothers, the kokanee. In seventh grade, my science teacher entrusted my friend and I to care for the little fry in our classroom until they were large enough to release into Lake Ponderay. And then it was like a solid 18 years before I saw another kokanee on a frigid and maybe not very well thought out November dive in Lake Coeur d'Alene. It was 41 degrees that day. The water was about that temp too. And to be honest, my ignorance probably would have continued if I had not picked up the sport of scuba diving. And as many of you already know, my unhealthy love for the ocean knows no bounds. So what does Idaho have to do with the ocean? It turns out Idaho has everything to do with the ocean. According to the Washington Sierra Club, the largest salmon runs in the world historically returned to the Columbia Basin, and over 50% of these salmon came from the Snake River and its tributaries. Mark Kurlansky's beautiful book titled Salmon, A Fish, the Earth, and the History of Their Common Fate notes that Idaho has lost the most salmon. 40% of Idaho salmon grounds have been lost to damming alone. So important is this fish to Idaho that we have an entire river named after them, and a lake, and what was once an entire economy that depended on their return every year. In short, no Idaho salmon, no healthy ocean ecosystem. And that is a topic for an entire episode. But the more I dug, the more problems that sprouted up. It's not just the ocean that's in trouble. It's an entire ecosystem and an entire way of life for people who have depended on this gift from the sea for countless generations. And it wasn't just the Idaho salmon in trouble. Worldwide, if there is a salmon run, there are issues. The problem is so overwhelming that it forced me to narrow down and accept my brain only had the horsepower to tackle the Idaho problem, lest I record a 16-hour episode. And even after months of researching, interviewing, digging, and, well, fishing, I still feel like I only grazed the surface of this issue. And while I tried to focus solely on Idaho salmon, well, salmon here care nothing for man-made boundaries. So for the next five weeks, I am going to share with you what I uncovered, and I hope that you find it as fascinating as I do. We start this series with a speaker for the salmon. Uh, my name is Jeremy Fivecrows. I am the communications director for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. Jeremy lays the traditional foundation of why we should care about the salmon at all and what this strange fish means to the Pacific Northwest. If you only listen to one episode from this entire series, let it be this one. Let's dive in. So first of all, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on this episode journey. What is your personal story with salmon? Oh, sure. Well, I could say I grew up in a very fishing family. I'm a member of the Nez Perce tribe. I grew up on the reservation just outside of Lewiston in Lafway, Idaho. And essentially my whole childhood, our summer and also all of our you know, weekends during the salmon season were going on salmon fishing trips with my dad and catching salmon and to uh and taking care of them and and you know preserving them smoking them salmon are my connection to a lot of not not only my culture but also all those memories of uh, spending time with my family at like rapid river near outside of riggins and particularly that was a, a common area as well as along the snake upstream from clarkston washington and it really was just our whole childhood. I was too little to like really understand what was going on, but that was where the, there was a kind of the culmination of a big skirmish between the, the Nez Perce tribe and the state of Idaho was at Rapid River, just outside of Riggins, over fishing rights. And there were like armed officers and there were people being arrested for, for tri they were arresting tribal members for fishing and they, there was a picture of my little brother who had fished and had it seized by the Idaho Fishing Game and was given a citation for violating state law to fish. And the, that photo, when it made the news all over the, the world of this little kid, this little you know, seven-year-old kid getting a ticket for fishing, this little Indian kid, really, it not only kind of these fond memories, but also really brings back memories of kind of this advocacy at work and kind of demanding the, the, the rights of the, the, the tribes had, had reserved, but weren't being, weren't being honored. And so it really connects me to that as well. Did you always feel like you were going to be an advocate for salmon? 
like where you are in life now, did you, was it always like, yes, this is my life's calling. I just know it. Or was it something that happened organically? It definitely happened organically. I was the editor of the Nez Perce newspaper. And then I was kind of recruited to come over to the Intertribal Fish Commission, which is where I work. And I really didn't know much about it. I just, I'd heard of the organization, but it really wasn't part of, on my radar, part of my plans. And in fact, I kind of like, I wasn't really personally like a big fisher myself. It was really my uh, my siblings that really got into fishing with my dad. I would always come along, but it wasn't really something that I did. So I thought, oh, fishing is really something that you know is for other people. But yeah, it once once I've got into the the topic and to tell these stories, it's it's really kind of like defines who I am. And, and also I think it lead my dad's example of speaking for the fish to kind of instill in others. You know, encouraging them to develop their own deep connection to the fish and to tend to their to this place because that's I think is what the solution to a lot of the problems just that we have in the world today is we don't have enough deep enough connections to our place and if we all put down a little bit deeper roots then we're going to be able to have the willpower as well as the drive to to address them I truly I don't know anything about indigenous beliefs or what or the relationship of salmon is traditionally here in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. The last time I had any type of Native American history was in fourth grade. I was eight and a half years old. I'm 31 years old now, which that's a lot of gap. And so when writing this episode and thinking about the right questions that I wanted to ask you, I realized that a lot of the answers of why the salmon, why we should care, lie in this deep tradition and deep relationship that the native peoples here have with this fish. So I'm really excited to pick your brain about it. And I did read your bio, first of all. I love that you went to Norway. I know I love that you speak fluent Norwegian. And that's a huge salmon run area too. Yes. Yes. But, and, and, and indigenous groups there with not only the Norwegians, but also the Sami in northern Norway are very uh, salmon centric as well. I find it very interesting that almost every place in the world has a traditional salmon run and myths around it and how important these fish have been to us as humans for thousands and thousands of years. And it's like we have collective amnesia. Mm -hmm. really, yes, yes. Which is, <laughs> And so I'm hoping today that we kind of brush away some dust on our amnesiatic mental shelves and just dive right in. So my big question, like I said, I don't know. What do the tribes traditionally believe about salmon here in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, well, the I'll start out with saying that all indigenous cultures around the world were defined in a lot of ways by the food that the foods that were found in their area. Uh, the foods in, in here in the Columbia Basin in the Pacific Northwest were salmon. They were the deer, other game roots and the berries. And those are the foods that the culture developed around. They honored and uh, cherished. It really drove their diets as well as their cultures and their commerce, their trade, and then at a deeper level, their, their religions. But this is true for every indigenous culture. I mean, if you would go to Hawaii, you would see a snapshot of what their foods are. And, and or if you would go to, you know, into to Sweden, and look at what the traditional foods that they eat there. That tells you a little bit about their environment, their ecosystem. And so it's it's, um, it's really that connection that it represents of a people to their place. In fact, there was a Amy Choi in a TED Talk about what Americans can learn from other food cultures. She has this great quote that, that says, food is the physical manifestation of our relationship with the natural world. It's where culture and ecology intersect, and it becomes even more important than language and geography when it comes to culture. And I think that's that really captures that idea of why salmon were so important to the tribes is because their salmon's body were literally what made up our bodies because of the, the amount of, uh, of the salmon that we ate. And then when they would return in the springtime, how that would be the end of the end of the long winter and you know oh few the salmon have returned and so we were able to like live another we've we've made it through another harsh winter and we can we'll be able to live uh, and have have enough food going into the next year as well and so all of these cultures cultural aspects that developed around that and reliance on this abundant resource really drove that connection 
What are the traditional myth and legends, salmon related to creation myths in the Pacific Northwest here or anything of that nature? Yes. Uh, one that's kind of common to the Sahaptan speaking people, which is that's uh, like the Nez Perce in Idaho, the Umatilla in and Warm Springs in Oregon and the Yakima in Washington. Those are the Sahaptan speaking tribes. We're pretty connected uh, culturally. We have a common myth about how creator was preparing to bring humans to the world. And in, in those days, you know, animals could talk, they, they were here, the world was the same as it was, except for there were no humans. And so the creator had gathered a grand council of all of these, all the animals and all of the plants to announce he's going to be bringing humans to the earth and that he wanted each one of them to offer a gift because they would need help, that they wouldn't be able to survive on their own. So the very first one to come forward was salmon, and he offered his body to, as food. And then after salmon, the other animals, you know, deer came forward for food and for clothing and, and the roots with theirs. But it's really significant that salmon was the very first person to step forward to offer his body to, to feed us. That really comes forward at like the first salmon feasts when, because the, when the salmon first return in the spring, there's big, there's feasts at the longhouses to honor and celebrate the return of salmon and uh, to honor his, his sacrifice. There's so many layers of teachings in these stories and some are really easy to understand, even for like children, they, they, they understand the idea or it might be, there might be some funny aspects of it and that will really engage children. And then as you get older and wiser and more experienced, you see little nuances about, about these things. Often I'll hear in my work, working with uh, tribal elected officials in salmon management is the idea from that story is that the animals all had to give up their voices. That was one of the, one of the things that creator took away for them to, so that humans could, could have a voice to speak. But out of that came, comes an expectation that because we have our, their voices were given to us, that we have an obligation to speak on their behalf because they can't speak anymore. Uh, which really drives a lot of, I think, the thinking of tribal resource management is that what would the salmon say or if in this in this situation, or what would the deer say, and to really be their voice rather than to just see it through a human lens. Right, right. And so that really does bridge that gap of responsibility to one another and removing that idea of animals as objects or trees as objects and more of a, a living people, if you will or a living community with responsibilities that go both ways. And I think that's really where the humongous divide happens and why we have these issues today. And, and also I'll remind you though, that, uh, you know, the, the divide is really a modern thing. Like if, if every single human on the planet goes back, they're going to eventually get to the time when their ancestors were indigenous people living an indigenous lifestyle in the place where they're ancestrally from. And it's really kind of like a more modern thing of like so much travel and, and, and kind of disconnected from a culture of place when you move mm -hmm. that culture, but don't modify it to meet the expectations or needs of the new place. That's when you kind of come into problems and also then start to become disconnected from a place. You did mention this sense of place in your bio. How do people who have become disconnected can or cultivate this sense of place that we've lost? I give a lot of presentations to elementary age kids, middle school age kids. Mm -hmm. The question of how to develop a sense of place comes up quite a bit, uh, just because mm -hmm. I think kids are really receptive to this message and to kind of th this desire of wanting to connect. And generally, the, the kind of the, I'll start with the easy ones. The first is to just spend time outdoors in your space. Learn what it is like in all four of for the seasons. Just be observant. What are the native plants? What are the native animals in your area? Learn for them. Sit quietly in an area. You know, just that, that kind of know your surroundings. The second one is to actually to grow a garden. And the reason I say that is how much of our food we don't have any idea where it comes from. You know, here we're, we're talking about salmon and salmon, 
was the food of this place. And part of, mm -hmm. part of that connection is they came out of the river that they lived right next to. And, you know, you probably knew the, the person that caught the salmon that you're eating and he's becoming your, part of your body. But, you know, and I'm guilty of this as well, but when you go to the grocery store and buy a frozen pizza, I have no idea where the wheat was grown for that crust, or I have no idea the hands that picked the tomatoes to make that sauce. It's like the, the connection is completely erased. And and so by growing a garden, I think is one, like a simple way of eating food that the land where you actually live and you you rest your head at night, it produced that, that tomato or those beans or that corn, that land has become a part of you and you eat it. Because when we eat food, it becomes, you know, the, either the energy or the physical, the, our physical bodies. The third is to just find tribal events in your area. There's lots of powwows or just cultural events or whatnot that are open to the public and people are welcome to, and just to learn about what, what are these cultures that were connected to this place and maybe take away something of how, how you can learn from that or maybe modify your own personal uh, cultures to for, more fit into, into your environment. And, and then the, the, um, the last one is to just really commit to be, be a protector. I think once, once you de you've developed this connection to kind of the, your place, to the food, your body is made out of that, it, it's kind of natural, hopefully, at, at that point, that you'll also want to speak up for it, defend it, and uh, want to preserve it. When we're looking at traditional salmon run numbers, what did the tribes estimate they were before, we'll say like uh, pre-1800s, before a lot of, the, we see a lot of the industrial revolution start to head west? Yeah, yeah. So there's been a lot of research on this. And, and again, this is like really a lot of estimates at this point, mm -hmm. because uh, just from, you know, not only archaeological, but also just doing, you know, nutrition analysis and whatnot. In 1855, which is when the treaties for this re the tribes in this region, the estimate was between 15 to 20 million per year, with kind of an average around that we see in some of the studies. They, they kind of, if you average together all of the guesses, it's around 17 million is the number that we use. And then after 1855, they just precipitously decline. And a lot of times people like want to look solely at the dams as the cause of, of you know, the, why the, the salmon numbers are, are down so much. But actually, the vast majority of that decline happened before even the first dam was built. And it was largely due to logging right along rivers that filled up rivers with sediment and, and changed uh, migration patterns or just kind of uh, flooded out and scoured out the reds where the juvenile salmon were rearing. And a lot of placer mining where which would have the same damage to the to the substrates where they would pull up the the stream bed in looking for gold then later on the fish wheels there was a lot of harvest along particularly on the lower columbia where wheels that were essentially just water wheels but with fish nets on them so they would just scoop mm -hmm. fish out of the river 24 hours a day it's wild to me to know that they were abundant enough to do that yeah and they supplied completely supplied those canneries with so much so much salmon by the time the impacts from the mining and the uncontrolled forestry really kind of decimated those numbers there was this perception that oh it's it's the we need to ban the fish wheels which that was good anyway because they were with such uncontrolled harvest but so those were actually banned by voters in, in Washington and Oregon within a couple of years of each other. But a couple of years after that, the last ban is when Bonneville Dam went in. So it's kind of like I say, well, we kind of kicked salmon while they were down. They're a resilient species. You know, they've gone mm -hmm. through like the, you know, the Missoula flooding events and, you know, lots of different natural disasters. And they've been able to repopulate areas, but they were repopulating pristine areas where all of a sudden mm -hmm. now here's this big decline. And then we put in the dams that were represented a significant block. And so they couldn't really pop back up. And so uh, the numbers at some point, it was during the late seventies that they had dropped to fewer than a million fish uh, returned Oof. to the Columbia basin. That's really a, truly a tragic number. I did not realize how big of a keystone species salmon are to not just the waters, but the forests and the soils and other animals. Can you expand on that 
and how basically salmon built the Pacific Northwest. And yes, yes. So usually when we think of uh, the the idea that everything is downstream, you know, which you know means mm -hmm. that from the mountains, if the water that's flowing by, you know, down in Boise or in in Lewiston. That it, it started up in the mountains somewhere, and then it also will then go on further down to you know to Portland and out to the Pacific Ocean, and so we always we tend to think of it everything going in that direction of everything going downstream, and salmon really turn that on its head. It's like they're they take they're going they go out to the ocean and collect all of the rich marine nutrients living in the ocean for three four five years, and then come back and it's like they're bringing it home with them in the form of their bodies and the the fact that they're so such an important part of tribal diets reflects kind of that mm. enjoying that those marine nutrients from you know as far inland as idaho you know 900 miles mm. or whatever uh, but also all of those carcasses fed the entire ecosystem they fed the scavengers once they'd spawned and died or they, there were a lot of predators you know you see bears and raccoons all these other animals that would actually fish for the adult fish as well as, as humans would and then they, they would in turn pull them up you know in with their waist as they would walk up and leave their droppings up higher up into the forest so representing this amount of marine nutrients that went far inland and far far up the banks away from the rivers you can't imagine having a species that went from 17 million to fewer than a million not really having an impact on the ecosystem if you think mm -hmm. it's not like the tribes were taking all of those fish they were taking what they needed but then all of those other fish were out there uh, kind of fertilizing the entire ecosystem this idea that salmon built the land is a recurrent theme that you will hear throughout all of these episodes so just how important is the salmon to the pacific and inland northwest I found a fantastic article from the Oregon Sea Grant, linked in the show notes, that paints just how important salmon are to this area. As Jeremy said, the salmon provide a huge source of marine nutrients to the inland forests and freshwater habitats. According to the Oregon Sea Grant article, Salmon as Nutrient Pumps, New Lessons in Watershed Health, salmon accumulate 95% of their biomass in the marine environment, and these marine nutrients found in their flesh can be traced through the entire ecosystem via carbon-13 and nitrogen-15. These isotopes leave a fingerprint on any animal that consumes them, be it from animal to animal or even animal to plant. Watersheds that show levels of these isotopes are often called watersheds on steroids because of the measurable increase in the size and abundance of the biological communities found there. So it would stand to reason that decreased salmon returns are also having a major impact on the ecosystem that relies so heavily on them. And yes, according to the article, commercial fishing has quote, diverted massive amounts of nutrients away from Washington and Oregon rivers. Only 3% of historic marine-derived nutrient biomass once delivered to these rivers reaches these streams today. Discoveries such as these denote how crucial it is to let some salmon make it back to their natal grounds and decay there, instead of using them solely for human consumption. Again, I am linking both this article in my show notes, as well as a photographic essay portraying the abundant gift a salmon body provides to the land. When I was speaking with Idaho Conservation League, we talked a little bit about what happened with the tribes, especially after 1855. But I really wanted to have more of a tribal perspective. And the reason why I wanted to have more of a tribal perspective is because anytime I go to North Idaho or I interview a local, one of the most common misconceptions that I'm constantly coming across is the tribes are taking all the salmon out of the rivers. The tribes are doing this. The tribes are doing that. And what I'm trying to to tell people is one, without the tribes, you wouldn't have any salmon in Idaho. And two, the tribes have tribal fishing rights granted to them. And I know there's a lot of tribes in Southern Idaho that don't even take their tribal fishing rights at all, unless it is a ceremonial single or a couple fish. So I'd really like to explore one, the Bolt decision, and then how tribal fishing rights work and how they came to be. Okay. Yes. So, so tribal rights to fish are called treaty reserved rights. They're not called treaty rights. Like the treaty didn't grant these rights. The tribes held the right to fish. And at the time of the treaty negotiations, they were, mm -hmm. that's why it's called treaty reserved rights. It's like the mm -hmm. tribes, they're essentially said those aren't even on the table for negotiation. So that we're keeping that those rights and we're, we might be giving our rights to 
you know, the title of these land holdings or whatnot, mm -hmm. but the right to fish wherever we fish, it's not even on the table. Uh, and so that's where the, the rights to the, the tribes to, to fish came from. Over the course of, you know, from 1855, when those treaties were signed through probably the, like the 19, into, all the way into the 1960s, there was a lot of disagreement between, you know, the states and the federal government, and the tribes of like what, what that actually meant to have that mm -hmm. right and what were the limitations. And often the states would impose limits on the tribes. And so the Bolt decision and then later on the, the Bologna decision, uh, it's kind of the, uh, this twin of court cases that were in the sixties um, were one Dick said that tribes were entitled to a fair share of the harvest of harvestable salmon. And then the other case um, said that the tribes were entitled to half of whatever the harvestable share is. And uh, that kind of jump started the whole tribal co-management of salmon in the Pacific Northwest by the tribes that had those treaty fishing rights, which were the, the Nez Perce in Idaho, the Warm Springs in Umatilla in Oregon, and the Yakima in Washington. And there, that it's been, uh, it took literally decades to kind of work through this, uh, what, what that meant, how, how we come up with fair shares and allocations. Now the, the system is, it, it's really, really complicated, but there's expertise on, on all sides of, of how this works. And essentially what is done is at the beginning of each season, the states and the tribes with the rights and the federal government will all sit down and look at all of the forecast data, look at, see, okay, there's this many fish that are going are projected to return this year, which means we need to have a certain number that return to make sure that they continue the species, that hatcheries have enough, that, that wild can get through and be able to spawn naturally. So we'll decide this number is how many we can harvest. Tribes, you get your half, the states will get our half. And then from there, the states get to decide how to make use of their share and the tribes get to decide how to use, how to allocate their own share. And so uh, in the past, I don't for like at least 10, 10 or more years, when you look at the data, the the harvest share has been within less than one percent of 50 50 split so the the tribes our allocations the system goes so there's three categories there's ceremonial fish and that's like the ultimate category even if there's just like a tiny number of fish that are available to harvest each year that always is what's first like that's the highest priority to make sure that the the, the long houses get them for ceremonial purposes or for funerals and name givings and other kind of uh, ceremonial events then if there's enough after that then it moves to allocating for subsistence so that's just for tribal families to be able to to harvest salmon for to feed that feed their their family fill up their freezer to be able to last through the year and then the third tier is if there's enough bounty that they can they'll open a commercial season so they can actually sell the harvest with the rest of their share typically the states with their 50 percent they make their decisions of allocating from like the ocean fisheries that are off their coasts the gillnet fisheries that happen in the columbia river and, and then there's sport fishing, uh, that allocation. Oftentimes, in fact, the, the Nez Perce can probably commiserate with a lot of the Idaho fishers just for the fact that they're at kind of the end of the line because so many of the salmon come from, from Idaho in that. And there's a lot of activity between Idaho and the, and the ocean where those fish have run. So by the time that, you know, the fish get to Idaho, the ocean fishers have taken their part and the the lower Columbia gill netters, they'll take in their part. The tribal fishery along um, between Bonneville and McNary Dam will have taken their part, as well as sport fishers in other other um, areas. So the numbers are really like where the, the the end of the line there. Uh, so and that's really kind of reflected. But it's really when you look at the numbers overall of the whole of the whole salmon run in the basin, it's fifty fifty. It's not like one mm -hmm. is solely responsible over the other. Let's rewind to the beginning of the episode. Remember Jeremy referencing Rapid River? For those of you who want to dig a little deeper into federally recognized treaty rights, I am linking articles that Jeremy sent me in the show notes. For those of you amongst the too-long-didn't-read crowd, here is a summary of the Big Sky Journal article titled Conflict on Idaho's Rapid River. Rapid River is roughly 150 miles north of Idaho's capital, Boise, and runs into the Little Salmon River. 
the water quality here is unparalleled. And all six of Rapid River's indigenous food species can be found in the water. Now remember, Jeremy mentioned the salmon were already in dire straits by the 1960s. Please see the linked graphic in the show notes or on my Instagram page. The dams made things so much worse, causing losses in all areas of traditional tribal fishing grounds. Hatcheries were implemented to supplement the loss of the salmon, but run returns were dismal regardless of hatchery intervention. To illustrate, the Rapid River Hatchery, built in 1964 by the Idaho Power Company, releases 3 million smolts a year, but less than 1% will return. According to their website, since 1964, returns can range anywhere from 200 salmon returning to 17,000 salmon returning. In 1979 and 1980, the state of Idaho closed salmon fishing at Rapid River, but the Nez Perce fishermen said absolutely not. This is our usual and accustomed place to fish. Like, we're talking 16,000 years of customary fishing grounds. Nez Perce members faced armed backlash, and many received tickets, like Jeremy's little brother, and even jail time. However, in 1981, Idaho District Judge George Reinhardt dismissed all charges against the accused tribal members, noting that, the state had refused the tribe an opportunity to participate in a meaningful way with the state in developing regulations that are clearly necessary if the Spring Chinook salmon is to survive. This ruling set a precedence for tribal involvement in salmon restoration, conservation, and fishing, and that partnership continues to this day. Without the tribes, there would be no salmon. This is really shown in what happened with the coho salmon and what the Nez Perce did, and I know we can get into that. How have the tribes combined traditional knowledge with modern science to advocate and speak for these species? So, yeah, that's a good, great question. The I think a lot of the, the salmon restoration that happens is a reflection of that connection, and as well as our cultural knowledge of, of the animals. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the efforts recently that have seen so much success, you, you mentioned the, the coho, the other one is the uh, Snake River Fall Chinook, uh, is also a very big uh, success of the Nez Perce tribe, has been from integrating Western science and traditional ecological knowledge. And to kind of elaborate on that, like what the operate a lot of what are called restoration hatcheries, uh, a traditional hatchery, uh, the, the salmon will be collected and then they'll be fertilized and, and raised to a certain age. And then when they're ready to, to migrate, then they'll just be released out to the river and they'll go to the ocean. But, you know, salmon, they're programmed to return where they were born. So if you operate the hatcheries as just making enough fish for humans to catch, it doesn't matter that they're going to be programmed to come back to a hatchery. But what the tribes are thinking, it's like, well, hatcheries actually are really good at propagating a lot of of fish eggs and uh, like having them survive, what if we, instead of programming them to like return to the hatchery before they imprint on an, on the hatchery water, we'll take them to upriver areas where we want to restore them and hold them temporarily in net pens in upper tributaries, up in little streams and in, in you know, smaller rivers long enough for them to go through whatever that the phase of their life is where they kind of it clicks for them of like, this is home and then release them. And so then they'll swim out to the ocean. But then when they get the, when they return and migrate back, they're just going to swim right by the hatchery because they're going to go to these areas where they've been programmed to. So it really is. So then it's, it's bringing the whole fish back to this area uh, and allowing people to fish for them, you know, in, in upper tributaries, as well as any of the spillover that, um, you know, be able to spawn naturally. So you know, it's mm -hmm. like, so you just think the hatcheries is just for one year or if you to kind of give them a boost. But after that, you know, salmon know what to do. If you're given the opportunity, they're going to spawn naturally. And so they'll, it'll maybe just be one, you know, one, one fish in the line that gets uh, raised in the hatchery if all of the children are wild again. And then also it gets all of those uh, ecological benefits because then those salmon are returning to these smaller upper tributaries and not, you know, kind of ending up in a landfill like you gave an example of. So that, so those are the two, that, that's kind of the, the thinking behind the restoration model that the, that the tribes use. And that, that's how the, um, the coho, that's how they were returned. The juveniles were re reared in hatcheries. 
and then taken to the areas where uh, they historically were found. And that's kind of where what brings in the traditional ecological knowledge is lot. There's lots of, of uh, oral traditions, oral stories about where where were traditional fishing areas, where were traditional you know fishing villages in in some of these areas, where were, where were common gathering points. So they would they knew exactly where there were abundant enough runs that would trigger enough of a, like of a people that would travel to get to there. Uh, and from there, so they knew that, okay, this is good habitat. This has the conditions that obviously that, you know, coho or whatever, whichever species uh, need to survive. And so let's focus there and get them restored there. And then we can kind of like expand from that point. And so, yeah, we've seen these successes where initially the um, state of Idaho was really opposed to the coho return because they were extinct they were they were declared an extinct species in idaho and so bringing them into idaho would constitute like kind of like an introduction of of a non-idaho fish at that Mm -hmm. point the nez Perce tribe said no we're it's this this fish belongs here it's part of this ecosystem you know we'll, we'll take some of its cousins that were from across the border and put them in these rivers and they they had to do it you know at um you know, kind of undercover darkness. They like, you know, they were mm-hmm. threatened to by the state of, I don't, and I don't even know what would have happened or if it was what kinds of threats they were, but they said, we're going to do this regardless. And they put them into the river mm-hmm. and it became a success. The, the, we have a coho run throughout the Clearwater and the, and the salmon system where they could reach. And, and it's not just a tribal fishery now, you know, the state sells fishing licenses to fish for coho just as well for uh, the, the, the sports fishers can catch because that's actually that they fall under the same guidelines as uh, Columbia river Chinook of that the tribes and the States get a 50, 50 allocation. So, you know, for, for every two fish that the tribes return as harvestable, one is for the tribe ones for the, for the for non-Indians. So it benefits everybody for it to be there and the ecosystem. I think it's funny. Like, don't do that. Wait a minute. We can make money. <laughs> Never mind. Just kidding. You guys can put the fish back. Exactly. No, but, <laughs> but I, I did do just a teeny tiny bit of reading and the success of the coho is wild because, you know, I did an episode on sockeye and how it's been 24, 25 years of just trying to get the sockeye back from the numbers of 16 from 1991 to 1997. And then you have the coho, which are just like, Hey guys, we're here and we're back and we're huge numbers. And it's been a fantastic success story for uh, this idea of restorative salmon runs. Yes. So yeah. It's a great story. Yeah. And, and there is, although there are some differences there in terms, just in terms of the biology I think, of, mm-hmm. between the coho and the, the sockeye that it makes sockeye really, they're probably the most at threat for climate impacts. Uh, they they yeah. tend to come at a certain t- at a time of year when if the water's too warm, it really, really stresses them. And, um, and so you know, in recent years when we've had low water conditions as well as really warm water conditions, right during the sockeye timing, it's been mm-hmm. really bad news. In fact, it was 2015, I think, that 99% of the sockeye that were destined for Idaho died in the Columbia before they even got to the Snake yeah. River. And so you think, oh my gosh, all of this effort uh, to get these numbers, you know, back when you, you what you said, 16. Uh, fish that yeah. came in or the lonesome Larry era and like all of the work that's gone into it and to just see see them just and we saw photos along the Columbia where they were just washing up on the shore and it was just it was just awful. Um, what are some of the other big successes that the tribes have brought to the table when it comes to protecting salmon or restoring their habitat? Are there any other really awesome stories? In 2007, the tribes signed what was called the Columbia Basin Fish Accords. And actually, the Nez Perce tribe, they weren't a party to that signing, but through our, the organization where I um, I work at the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, which they're a member of, they um, there were impacts of it that, that they benefited. But that was an agreement between a number of federal agencies, including Bonneville Power Administration, the Bureau of Reclamation, the Corps of Engineers, uh, and the tribes and some states to that allocated to the tribes over a 10 year period was nearly a billion dollars in habitat restoration work. And as a result of that, there have been hundreds of thousands of acres protected through conservation e- easements. More than a thousand miles of stream became re accessible. It funded a lot of like culvert work or 
road riparian work and working with a lot of landowners to improve dream conditions or even cattle exclosures to keep cattle from going down in and ruining the habitat. So, and these, there's been thousands of projects that all four of the the tribes have done in regard to that, which is, so that's been amazing news uh, in some of these efforts. And also, uh, and you know, and I know that this is, the series is, is really about the salmon, but the, the, it also really benefited the Pacific lamprey, which was it's just an important fish for the tribes. It's a culturally important fish, and but it's it was really kind of forgotten by by most, in fact, or even considered a, a pest or a trash fish to be eradicated. Uh, this that accord allowed a lot of funding to help them get past dams, and now we're seeing numbers coming back to Idaho that we haven't seen for generations so a lot uh, between tribal restoration efforts of lamprey as well as some of these improvements we're like oh well, it's like there's some some high hopes that we have for that some of these will, will bring about a lot of some lasting change that's awesome and it's a perfect segue into the next question so with that said looking into the future what strides are the tribes aiming for when it comes to protecting the future of salmon there's a lot looking forward. There's a lot of opportunities. Uh, there's a lot, but there's also a lot of challenges that are that we see kind of written on the future, mm-hmm. particularly the effects of climate change. The right. salmon are cold water species. They're evolved to cold water. That's where they can breathe, the, you know, the, the best and, and fast moving water. Historically, a lot of Idaho was snow dominated watersheds mm-hmm. where the snow would build up in the winter and then it would slowly melt. And so it would supply cold water throughout the summer. And where, whereas now, if it falls as rain, it fall it just washes down right as it f- fell. So it would cause really high high water events in the winter, and then no water in the summer. You know, so so these are like really conditions that are like really uh, dangerous for salmon. So a lot of of the work that the tribes are doing ways to kind of mitigate those effects for salmon, uh, but also then be part of some of the solutions to help mitigate climate change itself. Uh, one is uh, we really are doing a lot of work on helping to protect as well as promote what are called cold water refuges along, particularly along the Columbia where it can get warm. And they, these are areas where uh, like a, a, a larger tributary will create a big plume of cold water as it enters the, the reservoir. And so it allows salmon to kind of leapfrog from a cold water plume at the mouth of the big rivers all the way up, it kind of gives them a, a chance to rest, de-stress from getting swimming through the warmer water on their way up. And that's another issue about the lower snake dams is there's not very many big uh, rivers that are really cold that flow into the into the main stem along that stretch. So it doesn't really have cold water refuges other than like seeps or springs that might come, which isn't really enough to support that kind of migration pattern. Another thing that we're really started work on with is our push toward what we call it, it's an energy vision. And it's kind of realizing that the energy transition that's happening as a result of addressing climate change is coming no matter what. But we need to, by if we think ahead of what are the needs of the salmon, what are the needs of the ecosystem before it gets really pressing and people just start at, it's like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, we're out of time. We get, we're going to just build whatever. If we, th- if we do about it in, in a more kind of thoughtful way now, while we have the, some of the ability to think about what's the appropriate places to build solar panels, what's the appropriate places to build wind farms, and, and also what's the appropriate way to operate the dams in relation mm-hmm. to solar and wind farms. So the end result is that it'll benefit, or it has a net benefit on salmon rather than kind of being built on the backs of salmon. I, once again, mm-hmm. uh, right now, the hydro system is kind of, you can say that it's kind of built on the backs of salmon because they pay a big price mm-hmm. in their migration through those, and as well as the different water quality and temperatures of those. But they could also be operated in a really bad way for salmon in connection with solar and wind power, where if during the daytime when there's lots of sun on the solar panels and there's lots of wind, so there's windmills are generating a lot of electricity, there could be the temptation to like say, oh, well, let's just close the floodgates at the dam and let the water build up. And so then at nighttime, then we'll open it up. And then so t- kind of turning the, the reservoirs into big batteries. 
So it makes sense if you think just in terms of providing electricity, but it would be terrible for the ecosystem and for salmon, the, the river to like be turn on, then turn off, then turn on, then turn off, then turn on, then turn off. By acting now, by planning for the future and thinking about how to prevent that, we get away from the temptation of if it gets really dire, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, and was like, oh my gosh, we have, we have to do this because there's no other way to provide electricity. It's kind of too late to like think in terms of, it would be easy for it to just say, well, you know, sorry, salmon, but we, this, this takes precedent. And so that's what we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. So that's another big part of our work. And then the third thing is we have an overall tribal salmon restoration plan called Waikanishmi Waikishwit. And that translates as the spirit of the salmon plan. And that's actually a plan like a, a salmon management plan that looks at the entire salmon life cycle from when they spawn. We call it gravel to gravel because it goes from looking at how, what t- touches a salmon's life from when it spawned in the tributary, migrating to the ocean and going all the way back. There's so many impacts of land use policies and water quality issues and the hydro system and harvest. There's just so much that that touches their entire life. By looking at that holistically as a big picture and seeing where you can do adjustments in the whole thing and not just take it apart and say, we'll just blame all of the fishers or we'll just blame the dams or we'll just blame it to like, look, no, it's like, no, there's their life cycle touches a lot of things. And there's lots of littler ways that if, if they're done in a coordinated way that we can really show meaningful change and benefit for salmon. What can the average person do to get involved and help be a voice for the salmon to fill that role, that responsibility to a salmon? How can the average person who is like, I don't know where to start. Yes. How can we help? So, well, yeah, the, this might sound kind of weird uh, to like start out with, but I really think to just eat some salmon occasionally, mm-hmm. because that is the reason why the tribes are so connected to salmon is because it's such an integral part of our, our diet and our culture. Mm-hmm. But if by eating salmon, you've you've made that part of your body as well. It becomes less of this museum piece that's like, oh, that's nice that this animal's in the river, but you kind of don't have any skin in the game. If you eat it and like, oh my gosh, I like, I love this. And, and we eat this when I get together with my family and, or maybe fishing with your, with your family. And just like the, that kind of like those familial bonds or friendship bonds as well, mm-hmm. as well as kind of the, having the, their flesh become part of your own body that really makes it sink in at a level past just mentally thinking, Oh, oh, it's nice to have salmon to being kind of spiritually and emotionally connected to that fish as well. And that's really what the basis of the tribal connection is because it it fits. It's a, it's a physical connection, but it's also a, a spiritual and emotional connection. And, and that really is what drives our desire to want to try to do whatever we can to, to help save, save these fish. So that's why I say it's kind of ironic that we're like, you to save them is by eating them. So that's, that's one is just being open to that. And then by, by being open to that, I think that things, it, it will change outlooks of like where you, you'll see points in your own lives, in your own neighborhood, in your own community of things that might impact them of, of what you can be in terms of vocally an advocate for, whether that be, you know, good, good water use planning or, you know, water quality protections or, or whatnot. Uh, but it kind of bleeds from that same idea of like, if you're, you're thinking about, you know, preserving something that's meaningful to you, you, you'll look around and be able to see, see those things yourself and not have to be told because you're, you'll be on the lookout for them. And when it comes to eating salmon, like, I guess like there's always good people like, what about sustainable eating? Obviously one, go fish yourself. (laughs) But is there a better way to get a hold of salmon aside from going to Costco and getting like a frozen bag of salmon where you're like, I don't know where this came from. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, what would you recommend? <laughs> Avoid farm salmon is what I'll, I'll say. Mm-hmm. By buying wild caught salmon or wild mm-hmm. salmon, whether that be from tribal, they're tri- I mean, they're, the nest person that occasionally will have that available in Idaho of, of commercial sales. But even if it's from a, an outside area, mm-hmm. if it's wild caught, you're supporting kind of local fishery or um, or kind of that lifestyle that's connected to the salmon. But again, I'll say just, it's not like I don't eat Alaskan salmon. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, if I'm given the choice, I'd rather prefer, like, be on the lookout for salmon that are from this area, from the Columbia River, from the Snake River, knowing that that's the kind of the food of, of this place and to kind of support that. Got it. Is there anything else you would like to add to this interview, insights or things that we might have missed that you feel are really need to be heard? I really love looking for opportunities and ways that people can develop their connection to this place. The tribes don't have a monopoly on knowing how to live in this place, but we just have thousands of years of experience of what we've learned. And so we have a lot to offer a lot of outlook to offer and as well as understanding and this wisdom. If more people were to, to like learn about that and to make that commitment to, and to, to like develop deep emotional roots to this place. And a great example, I think of looking at all the parts of an ecosystem and what we can learn from it, uh, learning from kind of like learning from our relatives, uh, whether that be salmon or moss or whatever you see. And I think that in nature, there's something for everybody. Jeremy, I hope you aren't sick of me showering you with gratitude. Without you, I was going to scrap this entire series, because what would a Pacific Northwest salmon series be without their voice? If this episode inspired you to learn more about indigenous practices, seek out your local tribe. And, like Jeremy said, we all have an indigenous background. Find yours. Mine are the ancient Celts, and it turns out Ireland has salmon runs too. The Celts associated the salmon with wisdom. According to irishamerica.com, quote, one of the most ancient sagas tells how King Fintan escaped the flood by leaping into Conla's well, where he was changed into a salmon. Alongside the well stood a venerable hazel tree that was called the Tree of Knowledge because it produced both flowers and nuts simultaneously. Whenever a nut fell into the water, the hungry salmon gobbled it up. For each nut swallowed, he acquired a red spot on his back and absorbed another portion of the tree's wisdom. Ultimately, the fish became the salmon of knowledge. Traditionally, the salmon was also thought to have a connection to the divine force, and salmon could teach the ways of ancestral knowledge. Unfortunately, the salmon of my ancestral lands face the same fate as the salmon here. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find a salmon run that isn't facing the consequences of man. If you want to learn more about Native American indigenous wisdom and beliefs, both Jeremy and I highly recommend Robin Wall Kimmerer, a botanist, scientist, author, and member of the Potawatomi Nation. Her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, was one of my first introductions into indigenous beliefs, and I refer to it often. It gave me an entirely new perspective in which to view the world and informs many of my interactions with nature today. Jeremy also highly recommends her book, Gathering Moss, saying it was a one-sitting read for him. Please join me next week as I sit down with Mitch Cutter of the Idaho Conservation League as we dig deeper into these dams. You don't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support Wild Brood's conservation mission, please visit www.wildbrood.art where you can find a plethora of cranky coffee animals for purchase. This year, 100% of all profits from the Wild Brood Art Division are going straight to the Roatan Marine Park in support of their coral restoration efforts. Thank you again for listening and stay tuned for next week's salmon installment.